apologies for the short delay due to technical problems. So this has been a week that Extinction Rebellion is taking direct action in London to promote their goals, which is uh, the United Kingdom uh, stopping all new fossil fuels investments. And they characterize this action as an attempt to disrupt, to disrupt the economic life in the city of London. Now, I could have a whole solo episode on this idea of disruption because I find it so weird and so alien, at least to my character, this idea that some people feel good about disrupting other people's lives. So I feel weird even when I knock on the door of my line manager and I have to disrupt here for, quote, disrupt here for five minutes. So people disrupting and celebrating this disruption, I find it very, very weird. But this is not going to be the focus. The focus is mostly going to be what type of actions they are taking. So if you watch the highlights, you've seen people dancing around, you've seen people meditating outside of banks. You've seen this call maybe for, I think it's this Sunday, for what they call a carnival for social, for climate justice, where they say we'll celebrate global art, food, we will dance, and there will be stories. So why do why does a group which it's a movement which is supposed to be armed with peer-reviewed science, as they used to tell some years ago, why do they resort to this type of performative protest? Why these drum circles? Why these dances? Why these happenings? And the answer is going to be very interesting because it's going to tell us a lot about these movements. And also it is going to change perhaps the way many of you are viewing these movements and many of you are viewing modern protest movements in general so let's talk a bit about the idea of carnival so this is not the first time that the movement presents itself and embraces the title that we're that we're doing carnival as protest in the late 90s we had carnivals against capitalism in london and actually we had a group which called itself clandestine insurgent rebel clown army again embracing this idea that our protest is a carnival and now there's already something weird here a carnival is supposed to be ridiculous a carnival is supposed to be fun a part a carnival is first and foremost supposed to be a mocking in a way of the participants themselves they let go they have a good time and traditionally, protest used to be something completely different. It's interesting if you see pro, uh, photos from the civil rights movement, you see Dr. King with his suit showing up in the protest and you would see people dressing well when they would go to the protest. Because the idea is we want to be taken seriously and we want, to, we want you, the average person, to take us seriously because in a way we are like you there's something that bonds us together and we want to build to capitalize on that and this has been missing so the idea behind the carnival protest though is that carnival also besides this ridiculous element also had this element of how to put it of that the status quo is suspended the status quo is suspended for a while that whatever was down comes up 
it's this reversal of social role and this is part of what the protesters probably have in mind but the carnival first and foremost is a dionysian outburst and this is key in understanding modern protest modern protest if you take into account remember that essay by ayn Rand in uh, in the return of the privity the essay apollo and uh, dionysius there's the apollonial elements reason logic plan this austere kind of figure of of the thinker and then there's the Dionysian element letting go uh, having letting some steam off and as i already said back in the day you'd see that the old left had this apollonial element that the protest was something serious even in my days in the communist youth the protest we were supposed to look good we were not supposed to do silly things because the idea is look who we are but lately and when i say lately i mean in the last decades we have these dionysian elements in protest and it's interesting to go back and see where it comes from in history so the first elements i would see in that was the easter day the eastern sunday of 1950 where we have a group in Paris called the Lettrists, which was a quasi-artistic, quasi, not really political, more than a counter-cultural artistic group, bursting in the Notre Dame during the service of Eastern Sunday and declaring God is dead. So what was their point there? The point was to shock. So now the idea is not to persuade, not to address a mind, but to shock, to address feelings. And in the 60s, this idea of artistic expression and protest becomes almost indistinguishable. Another example was a group called the Provost in Netherlands, Provost from Provocation. So their big moment was that in the Dutch royal wedding, I think in 66, but uh, I'm not 200% sure, they throw, uh, they throw smoke bombs and the idea is again that look what we're doing look at us we are going to shock you and the idea was that the bourgeois society is so brain dead that it's not anymore uh, you cannot address society in with reason you have to address them with these shock assaults and the main the biggest example of this fusion between art and protest is of course the situationists in France, the movement led by a guy called Guy Debord, the guy who wrote the famous book, Society of the Spectacle. So the situationist, it's difficult to say, was it an artistic movement or was it a political movement? But it played a very central role in the events of May 1968, the closest perhaps that a Western country at least post-World War II, has come to an actual revolution. And the situationists were well known for their cool slogans, for their cool lines, as for example, who wants a world in which the guarantee that we shall not die of starvation entails the risk of dying of boredom? So for these young middle-class kids, their revolt is in a way a revolt against boredom or a revolt against alienation. It's a revolt against the world of their fathers. 
And as an afterthought, it's also a political revolt. Or they had these other cool slogans, be realistic, demand the impossible, uh, be, it is forbidden to forbid, beneath the paving stone, the beach. So these cool sounding slogans, so at least back in the day, their artistic, so to speak, creation, they had some element of innovative, clever thinking, which I think is totally missing today. But that movement obviously failed, or at least it failed in its political aspect. There was no revolution. So at some point around the 70s, most of these radicals realized that looks like revolution is not going to happen. And looks like these masses, these brainwashed, alienated masses, are a lost cause. Notice, by the way, the similarity with today's environmental protest that you brainwashed people, you just want to drive cars and take cheap holidays to Europe. So this is this is not a this is not a new tendency. So if the political battle is lost, what can we do? Well, revolution is not anymore a plan because even the idea of revolution requires a bit of I have to put my brain on it. I need to have a plan. I need to have a way to address people. I need to have an aspiration, at least of an ideology. And these things were more and more missing from these radicals. But what they had was this idea of, I want to express my emotions. I feel alienated from this world. Therefore, protest became more and more a personal thing. It's what I call in my first book, a lifestyle choice. It became a gesture. And one of the most famous examples of this was the idea of a creating what a thinker called Joaquin Bay called a temporary autonomous zone. This means you take a place and for some hours or for a little while, you upturn the social norm, as Joaquin Bay called it, an uprising, a guerrilla operation which liberates an area of land of time or of imagination, and then it dissolves itself to reform elsewhere. So we're not even talking anymore about political change. We're talking mostly about the happening. And it was about the idea of psychological liberation, that we, that this society, capitalism is so oppressive to our psyche, and we're gonna, we're gonna let go. So that's how he called it a, a, a spiritual jihad. That's how Joaquin Bay called this idea of, uh, of the temporary autonomous zone. So notice here the defeatism, right? The, the idea is we cannot change the world out there, but at least we can express how frustrated we are with the world out there. And this is at the center of activism post 90s, 60s. And of course, the various communes and the various squads is the same idea. We don't even want to engage too much with the, with the world. We're going to retreat in our little commune, in our little squad, and then we're going to live the good life. Of course, the good life was not particularly good. This is why almost none of these communes or squads became anything more permanent than a temporary autonomous zone. Interesting point, the only communes of the hippies in the United States that survived beyond some months or years 
were communes that were turned to businesses, to organic farms or uh, bed and breakfast uh, motels and things like that. So interestingly, what came to the rescue of the hippies was capitalism and the profit, uh, the profit motive. So the idea anymore then is not to create political change, but to have these spaces of resistance. Now, what are the ideas that go together with these developments in politics? I would say that these were not autonomous zones only in terms of autonomous outside of the reach of capitalism, but they were also autonomous from the idea of reason and uh, reality. And this was very conscious. What you will find in most of these movements, and particularly in the radical environmental movement, is a very strong element of mysticism. And again, when Rand was writing The Return of the Primitive, when Rand was talking about Apollo and Dionysus, this was very, very on its early stages. In the decades that follow, this became way more clear. And an example are the gatherings of the environmental group Earth First, what they call the Round River Rendezvous. So these were supposedly political, let's say, gatherings. The idea was how do we bring change and how do we bring uh, more people to, to the cause? But actually, these movements were almost like mystic retreats. So listen to the experience of some radicals who participated in these retreats. One activist said, she talks about the activities they involved with. Later in the day, we separated and spent an hour or so alone with the intention of coming back into the circle, representing another being in council. I was a butterfly. In council, I spoke of metamorphosis. I spoke about how I could be seen as a teacher to humans if they would only listen. And even people who were close to this movement, even radicals like the libertarian leftist Mare Buxin, he was disgusted with this irrationality and this mysticism of this movement. So this, uh, this fusing of the political message with uh, uh, spiritual and weird tribal, uh, tribal elements. And an obvious example here is the anti-roads movement in the UK in the 90s, where in the camp in Twyford's down, the activists were people who called themselves the Dongas tribe. And these were not previously environmental activists. These were new age travelers. And the way they would protest the, the building of new roads, they would create some circles around their camps. And then they would have these totems with dragons. And they would have these, uh, these rituals where they would uh, invite indigenous Celtic spirits to connect them to the earth and to oppose somehow the building of the roads. And actually, when some more, let's say, politicized green activists came to the side, they said, you have to go away because you mess up with the, with the energy around here. You, you bring bad karma. Now, you could say, but these people are the exception, right? I mean, uh, mainstream environmentalism is not like that. But what is, let's say, 
the thread that links them with more mainstream movements is this emphasis on the gesture, on the performance. So we don't so much have political movements that have some particular ideas, and then there are some means towards these particular ends. Here we have almost the opposite, and particularly in the last two decades with things like the Occupy movement or the climate camps, if you remember them in the UK. There we have means, means of protest, form of protest, in search of different ends. And you could say with the climate camps, there was some idea. So the idea was climate justice, whatever this means, protection of the climate. But even there, you would see most of the emphasis was on how the movement was organized within workshops, uh, uh, codes of conduct, uh, safe spaces, all that stuff. So the idea was, look how special we are. Look how different we are from the world out there. We do th things differently here. And a question might be, but this is not very appealing, like lentil soup kitchens and these shamanic drum circles and all that stuff. I mean, is this appealing to everyday people? Remember, though, they don't want to be appealing to everyday people. They want to disrupt everyday people. So the idea that the Occupy, for example, talk about the 99%. If you took a walk around, 90, uh, around the Occupy, their target and the enemy supposedly was the 1%, but everywhere you would see actually uh, complaints about the 99%. Why don't the people come to uh, support? Why are, have the people uh, bought into the materialism of the system? Why are the people apathetic? Why do the people consume so much? Why are the people materialistic? So you need to understand that these weird rituals, let's say, of these movements is not something which it has gone wrong. It's the essence of these movements because they don't have any other essence. Why wouldn't the Communist Party, let's say, in the 30s, why didn't they have to do all these things, the, the carnival, the drum circles? Actually, in Occupy, I remember, I was there as, a, as doing research, there was a, a clown workshop or there was a workshop where you'd learn how to do animal sounds and you'd let go or i remember another experience it was a meditation thing so you would go there and there was a a guru and he said put your hands like that and you'd put your hands like that and he said feel the vibe feel the vibe feel the vibe and after something like five minutes say now everything is you're liberated and I said, what do you mean you're liberated? There's still uh, debt out there. There's still uh, unemployment. And the people around me, they were looking like, this guy doesn't get it. It's not about that. So this is how you need to understand, uh, you need to understand these uh, movements. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for your super chat. Where is it? I'm still reading. This is Jonathan's book price is primary hopefully i have finished it by the end of next week and we're going to do an episode on this bonnie says no plan because it's in your face anti-reason thank you bonnie it's anti-reason and this is where i'm just yeah this is this is what i want to say here so what i was saying is why doesn't the communist party for example in the 30s why didn't you see these things because they had a very specific aim. We want to gain power 
by force, if necessary, by revolution, and we have our plan. We're going to nationalize the means of production. We're going to execute our political opponents or whoever are today our political opponents and basically maybe a big percent of the population, but there's a plan. So there was no reason for these gestures, for this. The point was when you went to a protest, the point was, okay, we need to occupy this ministry. It wasn't we, we need to let go. And most of these people, they were like construction workers, uh, factory workers, they, 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 they weren't looking for an outlet to express their alienation. No, it was like the plan, okay, we are going to take power and we're going to kill you, but it's a plan. It's different from this uh, letting go. Of course, you could say it's worse, but what I'm getting at is that it's different. So why then do I claim that it's also an escape from reality? Listen this to this environmentalist. This guy is not from Extinction Rebellion. He's from a previous group, but what he says is very, is very telling because someone might say, okay, you're making that. These people are committed to reason. They just want to have some fun. Listen to this activist, quote, ritual is the basis of pagan spirituality. He talks about why they have these rituals in the protests. Ritual unlocks the rigidity of the rational observing mind and requires our physical participation. Let me read this again. Ritual unlocks the rigidity of the rational observing mind and requires our physical participation. Notice a bit of a mind-body dichotomy. So when Ayn Rand talks about things, she's not stereotypes, she's not the strawmanning. These actually, I think activists are even worse than Rand would imagine. Let's go back to our friend, the activist. It is how we connect with and pay respect to our place in the world. And it connects us to the biotic community that sustains us. So ritual and spirituality for them is a conscious escape from reason, a conscious escape from this world, a conscious escape from reality. And this form of activism is very fitting to these post-ideological movements, to this post-ideological world. And listen to what Extinction Rebellion says in their website. We must move beyond ideology to unity, beyond division to collaboration, what does it mean we must move beyond ideology to unity? Unity based on what? Surely not based on ideas because they haven't got ideas. Unity based on feelings. Unity based on, uh, on, uh, on, on psychic uh, vibes, which again is why you see this weird stuff. So the way the movement operates is its ideology. The way the movement acts is its ideology because its ideology is we are estranged from this world and we want you to see it listen to this uh, to this other activist this time from the occupy movement i asked an activist are you a political movement and here's the answer this is a spiritual movement we are focusing on the now Living in the moment is more important than making long-term plans. Forget fear and remember love. And then I ask her, okay, but what are your beliefs? Says, My beliefs are, I believe in the strength of inner spiritual radicalism. 
I believe in spiritual activism. But what I found most interesting here is the emphasis on the now. And this is also what Ayn Rand says. Ayn Rand talked about when, I think it was when she was talking about Woodstock, that these people are what she would say concrete bound based, that what matters is the now. What happens later, who cares? We need to feel good now. Listen this line, Rand talking about the hippies in Woodstock. If a box of cocoa puffs hits them in the side, they'll eat it. If a communally chewed watermelon comes by, they'll chew it. If a marijuana cigarette is stuck into their mouth, they'll smoke it. If not, not. How can one act when the next day or hour is an impenetrable block hole in one's mind? So this is the concrete boundness. This is the emphasis of now. And interestingly, you see this again in, in, in a movement that wants to call itself that this is a movement that talks about science. And granted, all these things are not taken from Extinction Rebellion protest, but it's the environmental movement that builds up to that. And Extinction Rebellion embraces it. That's why, again, they call the protest a carnival. So where does all this leave us? Why did I say that this might, this might tell us something about the movement that might be surprising for you? And many thanks to Marilyn for your super chat. This is why I get a bit annoyed, not annoyed. This is why I disagree when people say these are Marxist, Marxists are back, these movements are, uh, these are communists. No, these movements are the configuration, the verification that Marxism is dead that socialist as a movement is dead. These movements are the Frankenstein creations of the destruction and the death of the Marxist movement and the socialist movement. This doesn't mean that they are less dangerous or more dangerous. This is, remains to be seen. But these movements are not what, the, first of all, they're not even political movements. They're going to have very bad political effects. I remind you that these people who want to, they have their declared aim to disrupt by a carnival, they are people sanctioned by the government, they met with ministers, they're sanctioned by the intellectual elites, but this type of activism, this type of protest is, it shows their predicament, it shows their complete lack of ideas, it shows their lack of conviction, and it shows their lack to achieve anything except if by having the sanction of the people who they disrupt. Imagine these people having to build a society. Imagine these people having to have it their way and that the bankers and all these bad people go away. Imagine these people of the drum circles and the and the common uh, group uh, soups, uh, cuisines, how it's called, having their way. And for the end, I kept one uh, line, one quote that I found the most telling about their minds. So here's an activist talking about his vision of protest. Quote, perhaps the real threat to corporate globalization 
is the irresistible appeal of carnival as a tactic of resistance and dissent. Imagine 50,000 Indian farmers from the state of Karnataka spending an entire day laughing outside the state government offices. The government will collapse in the following weeks. So what does this activist, what is his big idea? Gather around the government building and laugh. So these are the people who are, who we have ideologically on the opposite side. And this should definitely give you strength, commitment, not be afraid to speak up against them because we're talking about this type of minds. We're, we're talking about this type of, to use an objectivist term, psychoepistemologies. We're talking about this type of seriousness when it comes to the thought of these people. So when I see this, I say the joke is on us that we're losing the battle of ideas from these people. Anyway, that's all I had for today. Uh, as I said in the beginning of this week, if we get to 10 new members by the end of this week, I'm going to rerun the workshop on extreme ownership. Joko Willing this week was uh, became uh, viral with his uh, address to the nation, what he would say if he was president. And I said that if we get 10 new members by the end of the week, we're going to rerun the workshop. We're at five. So three days after, we have five. So we have Friday, Saturday, Sunday, three days we need five more new members and the extreme ownership workshop in the productivity hub is going to be rerun if we reach 10 new members even if we don't reach 10 new members and you are let's say the sixth or the seventh or the eighth member you get access to the recording of the first session and you get access to something that i'm very very proud for creating which is the companion to extreme ownership all the principles uh, summarized, criticized from an objectivist point of view, and links with examples from popular culture, and what I found most interesting, examples from Rand's work. So Randian heroes being uh, applying or how they would operate in situations like the ones that Joko Willing applies uh, in his Joko Willing and Lech Baben apply in their book. So this is all I wanted to say for today. If you are more interested on how the new left became what it is, this is my first book, The Rise of Lifestyle Activism from New Left to Occupy. It's expensive because I had to go with an academic publisher. It wasn't my choice, the price, it's what it is. But you can find a lot of that information on my current book, the latest book, Identity Politics and Tribalism. So the chapter on the left, has in a way some overview of things that I mentioned in the first book. That's all tonight, very late at night for our time, but basically tomorrow, Ocon begins the Objectivist Conference. Tonight is the opening reception. Tomorrow is the first, uh, the first panels. So next week we're going to have a we're going to have a special week. Many of the things that usually are there are not going to be there because we don't want our content to clash with content from Ocon. The daily objective will be there because it's at the same time with, uh, with, uh, with dinner, uh, with dinner, with the lunch break. And we have a big guest on Wednesday, you'll see. 
But keep an eye on our social media every day. I think there's a post on that purple background where it says what we have and what is running every day. So that's it from me. I'll see you during the next week. No peak, of course, tomorrow, because again, it coincides with, uh, with Ocon. And thank you very much for keeping me company. We're going to be in Clubhouse for a while in case people want to make their comments or you have to listen to your thoughts and see you next week. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.